Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Wendy Pease is the owner of Rapport International, a language services company that provides high-quality written translation and spoken interpretation in over 200 languages. She's the author of the book, The Language of Global Marketing, and the podcast host of The Global Marketing Show. She's lived in Mexico, Taiwan, and the Philippines, has a BA from Penn State and an MBA from the Tuck School at Dartmouth College. I'm super excited to have Wendy on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Corey. I'm glad to be here. So listen, before we get into talking about, I know you've done some deals that have helped grow your business. I know you have experience, obviously, through the you know translation and you're living whatever in international, and we're going to talk about international deals. Um, but before we get to any of that, I want to take you back to when you were growing up as a little girl, uh, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because I'm guessing the owner of a translation, you know, uh, services company wasn't it back then. But you tell me, maybe I'm wrong. No, no, I think it wasn't until high school when I even became aware of the interpreting industry. And I said to my dad, oh, you know, maybe I'll be an interpreter. And he gave me really good advice. He said, go become bilingual and specialize in something. Then you'll have a lot more value as an interpreter. Mm -hmm. But I think if I went back to eight or nine, well, probably eight or nine, I was thinking teacher. Okay. I mean, I, I love kids. Um, you know, I babysat as soon as I could or was a mother's helper. And then I taught swimming and um, worked at a daycare center. So I think at that point, I was still thinking teacher. Got it. And uh, one other question looking back, what was your first deal of any type? It could have been something small when you were a kid or early in your career or anything you would consider a deal. I think that would be a dead giveaway is why I got into sales after college and not becoming a teacher okay. because I did the, I sold Girl Scout cookies and then my dad cut down a birch tree and he's like, look, these make really cool candle holders. So we drilled holes in them and put red candles and stapled the, uh, you know, the greenery on it. And I went door to door. I sold uh, chocolate as fundraisers. I think I even sold seeds at one point. So I just had a, a fun time walking around the houses selling stuff. Oh, did the lemonade stand. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, it was all about connecting with people and meeting new people and having fun that way. Love it. Love it. So, uh, so yeah, so that's interesting. You know, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm making up in my head at least a through, a through line here or a thread you know, because a lot of people might say, like, you know, you said the connecting with people, right, part was like, you know, what, what stood out. I mean, people could have thought about a lot of different things in those kind of early entrepreneurial ventures. Um, so is that also what attracts you uh, to doing the work you do now and, and kind of maybe connecting to other cultures? I know I'm, I know I love 
you know, just as a tourist, as a traveler, somebody who's done nonprofit work, uh, you know, in the areas of hunger and race and things like that, where I spent time in other cultures and other countries, it, it's just, it's fascinating to me. It's not what I do for a living, but um, so is that connection piece still a through line for why you do what you do? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my superpower is connecting people. I am always looking for who could I connect? Who could I connect where? Who needs that service? Oh, they provide it. And so I just get a real thrill out of connecting people. And then in my business, it really is all about my superpower because it's we really believe that our mission is clear communications for a peaceful and prosperous world. So there's so much potential for companies to do international business. And we've just seen it, particularly over the last couple of years of how connected we are. And less than one percent of U.S. companies export. And of those, 98% of them are small and mid-sized businesses. So it only takes small modifications to your website to start bringing in additional business. Yeah, you got me started. (laughs) And in addition to that, the state and federal government offers free supports to companies that want to do international business. You can get grants to help you translate your website. You can get grants to help you do international trade shows. Uh, you can get free strategic advice on which markets you can get introductions. So, I mean, I, it, so it all comes back to connecting people around the world and taking away that language and culture thing so you can still be productive and prosperous. Yeah. And I want to get into that piece of it a little while, but before we jump there in terms of, you know, the, the language and culture piece, um, let's talk a little bit about, because obviously, listen, you know, part of what you do at your services is help people market and sell goods, you know, internationally, and that's uh, and that's great. And that's uh, uh, and for this podcast, we don't talk about right marketing and sales. We talk about the inorganic growth. We talk about the deal-driven growth. So to, let's talk about that aspect of it a little bit. I mean, I know, for example, in fact, I was just on a call with a, a friend of mine who is doing some stuff in Panama. You know, and I asked the first question I asked him is, do you, you know, do you have local partnership down there, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, in my experience, I'd love to hear you talk about this is, you know, because this leads into conversations like joint ventures and strategic alliances and distribution deals, a million, uh, there's a million ways you can structure it. Mm-hmm. But in my experience, it's uh, the biggest mistakes that I've seen people make going internationally is that they don't have trusted local relationship. Talk to me a little bit about your sort of experience there and, and how you've seen people do it right. Yeah, that's so interesting because I think a lot of companies think that they either have to open up an office there or they've got to go right out and get a distributor. And then they hear about all the problems of getting, you know, into a relationship with a distributor that isn't the right one. But I also think there's lots of ways that you can put a big toe in without having that trusted relationship because it's hard to go out and build a trusted relationship to do the business. So can you partner with somebody on a deal? and get to know them. Can you leverage the internet for building business? And I mean, inbound marketing is huge all over the place. And uh, so how can you build out your website to start doing deals in countries without having to make that relationship first? And then once you start doing deals, you start getting to know more and more about what's there. And the other thing is, where do you go to find people? I mean, I'm part of Softland Partners. It's softlandpartners.com, where a bunch of service providers... uh, 
join and we meet on a monthly basis on a geographic region and we share information. So I've got some tremendous connections there who have built relationships that you could start doing work with them. It's, it's, you know, they can hire employees, you know, through a PEO. Are you familiar with a professional employer organization? So you don't have to hire directly. You could hire through them. So there's so many ways to start with baby steps rather than going, okay, I'm going to enter China and I've got to figure out the language, the culture, and I've got to have a best buddy who I trust to help me enter that market. So I think, you know, unless you're a large company and you've got the funding to really go in full force, what are these relationships you already have that you can leverage? Plus, the Department of Commerce has offices all over the world. So you can reach out to people in country and they'll help make introductions or help do something where you can do a trial basis and build that relationship. Love that. That's great information. And it would seem to me that especially if you're, if you're doing that and you don't have a strong relationship, significant relationship with a local partner already, that a lot of the stuff that you do, like, you know, being able to communicate well and mm-hmm. and understanding the cultural differences and, you know, and, get, you know, being able to get access to, to folks and have them taking seriously, like the work you do becomes absolutely crucial in facilitating that, right? It does. It does. And it's, you know, on the written side, if you think about doing a legal contract, I think I was mentioning to this before we were even on this podcast, that if you're doing a legal contract with somebody, you want to have it translated so you're both clear on it. I mean, I learned early on that a legal contract, we're much more legal contract oriented in the U.S. than most other countries in the world. But what I found is if you say, hey, look, this is the agreement, we're just going to put it down on paper. It brings up all the other questions that you may not have thought about. So you don't have to position it of we need this legality between us. But I always recommend that in whichever contract you put, if there's a question on the translation of either agreement, this is the one that prevails to help, you know, just keep clarity on it. And then also have an interpreter, even if the person speaks some English, if you're worried at all about how the communication is going to go across, then you want to have an interpreter and use them because they can be a real cultural conduit with explaining what's going on. Like as we're recording this, we're on video. You're nodding your head, which as an American, I know that means, yeah, I agree. And if you were shaking your head, I'd know that you were, you know, not agreeing with me. But in some cultures, the head nod is just, I hear you. It doesn't mean I agree with you. And so there's, there's a lot of little subtleties that smart business people know that if they have an interpreter, they can always pull them aside and say, this is what I'm trying to figure out or what's your read on the situation. So let me ask you a question. Is there a difference? I remember um, very early on in my career, so this is in the 80s, uh, we had a big deal where a U.S. company we were representing was selling to a Japanese company. And we had actually not only interpreters, but we had a, we had a cultural consultant who you know, was telling us, and they did a great job up until up until the closing when we didn't uh, when we failed to have um, nice pens for each of the signers because it, it, at least that time and it may, may still be true. I, I, I you know it's interesting what's happened in some ways as the world's become more globalized. You know more sometimes U.S. practices have taken, but there's still so many places where you know whether it's how you take a business card from especially people in Asian cultures. Um, 
uh, you know, and there it was, you know, every signer had a pen. They only used that pen to sign that deal and they kept it as a memento. And we didn't have those. And there was a big panic and we had to send somebody out to go buy, you know, some nice pens back in the 80s. It was cross cross pens. Um, so uh, the reason I, I just give that as an example is I'm curious, you know, about the difference between translators and cultural consultants and, and you know, what aspects you provide. And, and also, this may be just an opportunity for you to get a little in a little more detail about what you do, because you mentioned written translation, you mentioned translators, you know, how much of the cultural stuff do they help with? Yeah, they, I mean, if you hire professional translators and professional interpreters, they'll have been trained on how they're supposed to help navigate with the two cultures. It's not just anybody that's bilingual can help that way because they don't understand the misunderstandings that can happen. So you're talking about a cultural consultant that you had for a large company, and that might make sense, particularly back in the 80s where you couldn't access the internet. But if you're talking, you know, it depends on what size company you have. There are people who are cultural consultants that you could hire in, particularly if you have the budget of a large company. If you're a small and mid-sized business, you're pretty usually pretty scrappy jumping into it. So that's what I say, you know, is call us and talk to us about it. Um, go on the internet and try to research different business practices. I used to um, recommend a book, but I think, you know, things are there. You mentioned that things are becoming Becoming more Americanized. I don't think that's the case. I think the globe is getting more used to people function differently. So if they're not doing, if I'm working with a foreigner and they're doing something different than I am, they might not know what's expected of me. So there might be more of an acceptance of that. Yet, if you spend that time learning the other culture, you're going to be more successful in deals. We did a translation for a company. They manufactured specialty fabrics, um, like for police and firemen. And they went over to Korea to make a presentation. And they were the only company that translated their slides into Korean. Yeah. So even though the meeting was held in English, the slides were in Korean. And that was a huge way to connect with the audience that was in there. The other things that can be real different in sitting in a meeting, if you go into a lot of the Asian companies, you'll have a whole team of people. So here in the US, you might send one executive over and then you get in the room and you're trying to figure out, okay, who's the lead? Who's the decision maker? Well, they have a much, you know, a lot of countries have a much more consensual decision-making process. So it's not going to be one person making the decision. And some of the stuff like the pens, you may not know until the last minute. So that's, if you have that interpreter with you, you can try to say, okay, what will we expect in this next stage? Or what, you know, turn them, what's going on right now? Because obviously they're not happy and that's where you right. can have a, so there's so many resources that you can, can use and that you know the the department of commerce people that are in country the people that are at your state trade offices that have been over there before so there's so many resources to help with you know when you're getting into a deal situation do your advanced prep yeah i 100% agree and and yeah as to what you said you know in, in the first part of your response uh, yeah, I, I guess what I've seen, you know, to, to, to be more specific on what I, at least I've seen, I'm not saying it's indicative of everything, but I think there was a period of time where, you know, where the world was, you know, first opening up. And I think there was a stretch where actually, like I remember I did deals in the in the 90s with a lot of the Eastern you know, European, with Russian, you know, folks and as the Soviet Union was falling apart. 
And, and you know, in that stage, there really was actually a desire to become more Americanized, right? I remember even the Russians at that point, you know, they were, you know, they were like, I had a, I won't tell the whole story. I've told it, it's been a while, but I told it on the podcast previously. But the bottom line was they, you know, they were negotiating against uh, signing a class, you know, a typical non-circumvention agreement that said, hey, we're going to introduce you to some, you know, manufacturers, whatever, and you won't go directly because my, my guy was the middleman, you know, um, and they wouldn't sign that because they were now capitalists. They were now, you know, uh, no longer, nobody was going to tell them who they can do business with and who they, you know. Um, and so, so I think there was, especially in some places, this move to sort of, you know, adopt more of the American way of doing things. But I, yeah. but I think you're, I know you're hundred percent right. And everything we've done now is, and I think it's great because I'm somebody who really loves and respects other cultures. I think now there's been such more of a move to, to not be that sort of dominant American, we do business this way, you got to do it our way kind of thing. There's been a much higher level of sensitivity in recent years, uh, you know, to uh, cultural, you know, differences and competencies and, 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 and respect. Um, That's so, also yeah. happened in the United States. It used to be when people came in, it was the melting pot, you've heard right. it called, where people wanted to get rid of what they, whatever culture they came from and become an American, learn English, assimilate, not stand out. That's changed. People come into the United States and they're bicultural. They want to keep their language. You've got Russian math school. You've got Chinese school on Saturday. You've got people speaking languages at home. If you've got parents that speak two different languages, they both speak the, the different language to the child. And then the child learns English uh, at school. So there's a, this much more of, keeping this richness. So I've heard it called the mixed salad where you've got your crunchy greens and your, you know, flavorful tomatoes and your cucumber, you know, which, and I think it's so much, we're so much rich for it. No, no question. And listen, one, frankly, I mean, personally, one of the regrets I've, I've had, you know, like as I've traveled the world and been blessed to spend time, a lot of time in other places, you know, you look in Europe, for example, and, you know, people, I mean, forget bilingual. I mean, you know, that's that's like almost the minimum, right? People speak, you know, at least two, often three, four, five languages. And part of it is because you have so many, you know, you have so many countries close to each other that, you know, it's almost like, you know, yeah. every state in the U.S. spoke a different language. And, uh, you know, and, and, and you know, I grew up, you know, in typical U.S., uh, you know, taking uh, a, a couple of years of Castilian Spanish, you know, in, in school, which wasn't conversational or whatever. You know, it didn't help me at all speaking to my Puerto Rican and Dominican and Dominican, you know, New York friends because I, I you know, it was totally, you know, uh, learning, you know, yeah. Spanish Castilian grammar doesn't help you, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. So, On the street, uh, yeah. And, you know, and it's frankly one of the things, you know, just to forget business for a second, you know, when I, when I travel, I, I like to go off the beaten path and really get in deep with the culture and, and you know, not uh, obviously if you speak the language and, not only helps you get around, but it helps you understand, you know, yeah. things that can't translate truly. Right. You know, that, you know, so personally, but then obviously, you know, yeah, in business, it's, uh, you know, it's even more. And obviously if you don't have it yourself, then, you know, using a translator can be, can be used. So you provide live translators. You also do written translation. Like let's talk about the scope of services and the types of clients that you generally work with. And then I okay. want to into your deals. Okay. So I think the first thing to know about our industry and the language services industry is you've got translation, which 
specifically means anything written and interpretation means anything spoken. So if you listen to the news, they'll say the president's translator, that's like nails on the chalkboard to me. It should be the president's interpreter Interpreter. said. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So now you can watch for that too. And we'll start spreading the word. But I think, um, you you know, so we do anything from one language to another and it can be Mm -hmm. translation. It can be interpretation. We start with the company strategy. What are you trying to accomplish? We look at their marketing strategy or we look at their, you know, their deal strategy, our acquisition strategy and help them figure it out. And we can go all the way through providing an in-person interpreter, telephone interpreting, video interpreting, so to help facilitate the calls. And I think, you know, the research that I've seen is about buyers online and 90% of them are more apt to uh, spend time on a website if it's in their language and over 50% of them, like 56% of them will pay more money. And then there's all sorts of statistics on how, if the material's in their language. So I could extrapolate from that, that if you're cutting a deal with somebody in another country and English is in their second language and you're saying, oh, English is the global language, we can do it. Be very, very careful because they may feel more comfortable with you. And you know, comfort makes for a better deal if you're doing things in their language. I wrote a book called The Language of Global Marketing, which really is about global communication. So people can get it, you know, read that to get ideas for how you communicate, how you set up a process and system if you want to do that and, and get into global deals. And and the other thing to talk about is that the the middle class around the world is growing. The technology innovation is skyrocketing with the stuff that I, I mean, you must be seeing it too. Yeah. And so if you're looking for acquisitions or partnerships or JVs or anything around the world, keep your eyes open for those hot spots, you know, just like we would in the United States. Yeah, no question about that. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating time. Yeah, I uh, heard something on one of the NPR stations recently where, you know, there are some people are now saying that with everything that happened with the pandemic, with the global supply chain issues and et cetera, whatever, that, you know, uh, there's going to be a pullback on, you know, on globalization. And it's an interesting topic and we can debate it and whatever. And I, 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 you know, and I do think there's going to be some adjustments, right? You know, uh, uh, you know, I think people are going to create some redundancies, especially in terms of, you know, supply chain and that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I think the macro trend, you know, is going to be <laughs> continued interconnectivity around the world. I, I don't know how, you can have some pullbacks in specific areas because of certain conditions, but I can't imagine that that's not going to continue. So, you know, what you do. Oh, that's, you know, I majored in foreign service and throughout history, there's always been isolationism and expansionism, but before there wasn't the internet. And right. so you have the internet now and the e-commerce, I mean, I'm all over this, the e-commerce companies that are out there, if they only have a website in English, people are trying to find them from other places. You go on Amazon and they're using machine translation to push the, the goods yeah. and you get this jumbled mess of half English, half translation. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, if these e-commerce companies would just put some good translation up there, 
partner with Amazon for the distribution networks, yep. they could they could easily double, triple their sales. And the other thing is that the US used to be by far the richest market. And when I wrote the book, I did a whole bunch of analysis of PPP, purchasing power parity, and you know, the gross national profit. And you know, I looked at it from a bunch of different financial metrics. And the US isn't the financial powerhouse that it used to be. You've got these other countries that want good and they want partnerships. And we ship in so much more than we ship out that there's lots of container ships that can go. So yeah, we're gonna, I think like you said, we're gonna have to build redundancy so we don't get, so we're not so dependent on one stream, but you put redundancy in from different countries, you can still build it rather than having to pay the high expense of having it in your own backyard. So it'll be interesting, but there's no way. I mean, the whole, the world is flat. (laughs) (laughs) And we've seen it. We depend on each other. Totally is. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So you've also, just switching gears a little bit, you've also done deals to grow your own business, right? You've done a couple acquisitions. And so let's talk about that a little bit. You know, what had you made the decision to, through deal-driven growth, in addition to, I'm sure, what's been organic growth? Um, and, uh, you know, and what, what were your reasons for doing, you know, talk to us a little bit about the kind of deals you did and, and, and why you did them. So uh, the first deal that I did was because I was looking for a job. I was laid off on maternity leave and I didn't want to go back and work in corporate. I had been, uh, I worked at portfolio companies for VCs and I was working at a, a large life sciences consulting company and they decided to do away with their corporate marketing department. And, you know, I was just tired of not controlling my time and my fate. I had two young children. So I I wanted to do something where I could work because I love to work. Um, I could make a decent living, um, but I could control my schedule. And I was at a VC conference up at Tuck at at Dartmouth. And Mm -hmm. I ran into a fellow alum who said, well, buy a business. And I kind of laughed because, you know, I'm thinking VC numbers and I'm thinking big dollars. And, but, you know, the seed was planted enough that I went online and started daydreaming about buying a business. And a lot of baby boomers are retiring. Business owners sometimes want to sell and do something else. I found this little translation company for sale. Um, reached out to the owner. I mean, on average, I think people look at a a hundred deals before they found one. I narrowed in on one. (laughs) Looked like the deal was going to fall through at one point. And the broker that I hired to, to, you know, help be my expert and sounding board, um, he had another one and I I was just not interested. I wasn't passionate about it. So he came up with some some creative ideas about putting money into escrow for the payout. Um, and 17 years later, here we are. Before we move to, to, to the next one, um, on that deal, so in theory, you could have said, I'm not going to buy, all right, I want to get into the you know uh, language uh, space, right? Uh, translation and interpretation. Uh, and um, you theoretically could have started that from scratch and hired people, maybe you had experience, whatever. What had you decide to buy into that 
uh, business, you know, industry as opposed to starting it from scratch? What did, what were the advantages of that? I think the fail rate of new businesses is what, like 70, 80% or something like that. And the mm-hmm. likelihood of success of a business continuing after two years old is a lot higher. So that was one motivation. The second was I hadn't been in the industry, so I really didn't know about it. So what I was buying was training and I trained for two weeks and I was buying a customer list. Yes. And so if you make an acquisition, oftentimes one of the most valuable things is buying the customers because it can be cheaper than trying to do the just the growth. Okay. So you did a deal to get into the industry, which is something that, listen, you know, people do. And certainly, you know, we see that a lot um, in actually in recessions or other economic, you know, things like the pandemic, whatever, where, you know, maybe executives lose their job or they or they make just different life decisions because, you know. Um, something in the world or something's in their life has triggered them to reevaluate. And, you know, they're smart people. They have some capital. Doesn't Again, it doesn't have to be VC level capital, right? Some of these deals are yeah. small. I bought it with a home equity line. Home equity line. Yep. Yeah. There you go. There you yeah. go. Okay. So, so, you, so, you, you, so now you have this foothold, you have this space that you bought into. Um, and tell us what happens from there. You grow, grow for a while. When did you do your second deal? What was it? So, yeah, I think it was about 10 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had lightly been looking for other ones. I had had conversations with other business owners. And then I found this one that was in uh, Nebraska, where the, the original one was in Massachusetts, where I'm based. And it expanded some uh, services that we wanted to get into. And I talked to the owner who was just ready to retire, just like the other one wanted to go on and do something else. So there, there was no problem with the business. And so, ironically, during the midst of our negotiations and closing, I broke my leg while I was skiing and I was toked up on pain medication because I had to have surgery. And the bank's like, no, seller, no, she cannot close right now. We can't have her toked up on pain meds and signing documents. (laughs) So he was pushing to close and they had to slow him down till I came down off the pain meds. (laughs) Oh, my God. So uh-huh. You said something that's interesting, which is another you know driver of deals, which is you said they they had some services or did some things that you weren't doing, right? Yes. So so one of the reasons that people do deals is want to highlight for the audience, right, is to be able to expand capabilities, right, into other areas where maybe their existing client base or or just in the industry they see opportunity. Um, so just 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 so it's an example that people can be more tangible, like what were you doing at that time and what additional types of services or access or whatever it was that you get in that in that second deal? Yeah, so the first deal um, was mostly translation. So it was mostly written work. Um, and if we got a call for an interpreter, it was kind of a dance to find somebody who was available. There was no online scheduling platform. There really wasn't a good database of who could provide it. And I really felt like people, like the buyer doesn't separate out the difference between translation and interpretation. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be able to offer both, even though they're, they're very different business models. You know, writing is more planned, structured, thoughtful. Interpreting is more juggling, scheduling, getting people here and there. So the business in Nebraska, we still work with all the major medical facilities out there. We work with the Nebraska government. We acquired a platform that we could 
could use to schedule, that we could keep, you know, preferences for interpreters and clients. We could make sure that if a client wanted to block an interpreter, that person wouldn't be sent out. Mm. Um, and so I really saw that as expanding our capabilities. So we could bring that here to Massachusetts and have an easier time managing that. And then also take our translation capabilities and move that to Nebraska. So um, it really did round out our services. Great. So we had both rounding out services and also a geographical expansion. Yes. So yes. those are the two, two great reasons to do a deal. In terms of your model, I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume because certainly on the interpretation side and maybe also on the translation side, but certainly on the interpretation side, it would seem to me uh, that you need access to a, to a, a bunch of different potential interpreters different languages, different geographies, different, you know, uh, uh, industries. I mean, I know legal interpretation is very different than, you know, uh, medical interpretation is very different. So I'm, I'm imagining, and you tell me, I mean, this is really just to get a curiosity about your business model. I mean, imagining, I, I'm sure you don't have a thousand employees. I'm sure you, yeah. so you have these relationships, I assume it's a sort of contractor, you know, basis, uh, you know, with folks that you pull in as, as needed? Is that the majority of the, you know, or let me just, how do you, how do you do it? Yeah, yeah. No, we, um, we work in over 200 different languages. And in the language pairs, somebody has to be fully bilingual in the language they go from, which is the source language, and into the target language. Right. Okay, so they have to understand the culture and the language. So if somebody sends me a resume of I speak five languages, we throw that aside. We wanna know that they're really good in two languages. Right. Okay, not only that, goes back to my dad's good advice. They've gotta be subject matter experts. Yes. So for the Astrophysics Institute of the Canary Islands, when they needed a Spanish translator, that's very different than somebody who's doing an e-commerce translation and doing a marketing translator right. translation. So we have to have not just 200 languages for translation, but we've got to have multiple resources in there so we can pull and match. We do linguistic matchmaking, which isn't common in the industry, that once we assign who's going to work on your account, we keep them with it because it's like writing. You get, you know, it's a knowledge base. Um, so some of the larger ones just to point whoever's ready. And I think that's a real shame because you're not getting that knowledge base. Now, on the interpreting side, it is so telephone and video interpreting. We've provided services to anybody in the world. I mean, that's no problem because it's virtual. When you start getting down to legal depositions, voc rehab appointments, medical appointments, we really do have geographic hubs that we provide. Yeah. Um, and so. Uh, we're always looking to enter new markets and we've got the, the way to, you know, grow them, but we're not going to really, you know, a one-off client is difficult if they're only going to have one appointment a year or something like that, then we'll, we'll encourage that they go to video. And there's not a lot of, uh, competitors that can service the whole U S because you've got to have that many people that are running around. So that's how we handle that. We've got an office team of about 10 people um, and they, we mostly specialize on project management, um, high quality services. And then we have our marketing and sales. We actually outsource our finance. We uh, send it to a bookkeeping company that's based analytics, which is based in Massachusetts, but they do all the accounting, the bookkeeping work over in India. So we try to stay pretty lean and manage it that way. Makes sense. It's just, yeah, I was just doing the math in my head, you know, because I was saying, uh, I was saying, yeah, all the languages, and then you need somebody write the combination of languages, right? This language, yeah. that language, 
right? Mm -hmm. I mean, just that alone. Then when you add industry in and you add geography in, like it's got to be millions of combinations that can come out yeah. of that. And, yeah, but um, if you think about it, you know, there's 6,000 languages in the world. If you speak one of a couple dozen, Yes. you're covering three quarters of the world. Yes. So even though we have provided some really Mandingo and Pashto and, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, languages people may not have heard of, the majority of our work is in a couple of yeah, dozen different yeah, languages. You're right. English, Spanish, French, uh, you know, Mandarin, whatever, right? You know, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I'll give you, yeah, I could probably name them off. That's going to be, yeah, it totally makes sense. Any other thoughts as we come to the uh, towards the end here? Uh, I'll have uh, two last questions for you. But any any other thoughts that you know in terms of um, uh, related to deals or related to you know business or related to companies having opportunities uh, internationally that you want to share? Well, just on a personal level, um, we're in the process of doing another deal that I hope is going to close over the next month or so. But I am looking, if you hear of any good translation interpretation companies that are interested in moving on, we've got a really good process system and team here. Um, and then, you know, just on a for your listeners, you know, if you're thinking about doing international deals or doing international business, I'm happy to make connections, you know, reach out to me on LinkedIn, Wendy Peas, like peas and carrots with an E at the end, the peas, um, or check out our website, Rapport Translations. You can always contact me through that. Um, but don't don't hold back. There's a tremendous opportunity. And the companies that do international work have higher revenues, higher profits, higher stability, pay higher wages. <laughs> So overall, they're more successful. So if you haven't been thinking global, now's the time. Love it. Love it. Listen, that's a great, great challenge for folks. You know, I've, I've, um, I've definitely, you know, listen, I've heard that before. And, I, you know, even, and I've spoken to clients about it. And I look at my client base and frankly, it's probably pretty typical. You know, most of them focus domestically. They don't, you know, they don't do, they don't do, you know, much of anything internationally. And, and yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of opportunity. So that's great. Well, if you want to do a, a, well, have your clients listen to this, but if you ever do want to do some coffee chat or anything like that, I can certainly talk to them and give them introductions. So I just, I want to take those blinders off of companies. Do not be afraid of language and culture and capture those opportunities that you have internationally. I love it. I love it. You know, it's funny because what, uh, you know, my main purpose of doing this podcast is taking the blinders off companies that focus only on organic growth. Like they're just, yes. they're just, they're just, you know, trying to get more sales, trying to get into a new market, trying to get whatever. And by the way, you should do that. You should grow organically. That's yeah. But, but there's all these deal driven ways to grow that so many companies don't take advantage of, right? It's a blind spot for a lot of them. They don't know it. They're not comfortable with it. They don't understand. They don't realize that they can acquire as opposed to build. They don't realize that, you know, they could be a smaller company. They don't have to be a venture co founded company. They don't have to be doing major M&A or capital raising. There are strategic alliances, joint ventures and licensing and, you know, online affiliate deals and a million things they could be doing. So it's a similar thing, you know, where, and I love the fact that you're bringing that's, you know, same kind of message around international business and that it's totally doable and you don't have to be a big company to do it. And then when we combine that, you know, we get to the point where you could be doing deals internationally as well. Right. So, uh, yeah, you know, no, and I love what you're saying. I mean, because you listed a whole bunch of different ways you could do it. And a small business owner could be really intimidated about that. But go online, go, you know, search, buy a business, find something you want to buy, call Corey and say, help me figure out how to 
to do this. And you can double the size of your business just going through that. And you'll help them with due diligence and everything so they know that they're getting an actual legit business. Exactly. And then, yeah. you know, and then I'll send them to you and you'll help them go international and now they'll triple or quadruple their business, right? So. There you go. <laughs> it benefits the United States. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, my final question on the podcast, one of these is about my highest value in life, my highest ideal, which is freedom. And for me, that means freedom from all people around the world, from oppression to the reason why I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss in decades. Um, so what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? You know, I think it goes back to our mission and the T-shirt I'm wearing is, you know, clear communications for a peaceful and prosperous world. So peaceful and prosperous is, is what I want for everybody. I love that. You know, I love that you're mission driven that way. And I can see how your business really, you know, really helps that. and. Um, and yeah, who doesn't want peace and prosperity, right? Yeah, yeah. My my shirt, I just bought it last weekend. It says uh, "World Peace." Awesome. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, this is Wendy. I've I've so appreciated having you on the podcast. I think you brought a different perspective than we've had in our 160 some odd you know episodes. Um, so that's great. That's part of what I really want to do. And, and folks, definitely check out all of Wendy's contact information that she gave. If you're driving or you know you didn't get it, it's going to be in the show notes. So definitely, definitely check her out. And um, again, appreciate having you on the show. All right. Thanks so much, Corey. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.